Turn with me to Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 to 23. If I can just level with you for a moment, uh, I love the Bible. I love its unity, its artistry, the way themes and phrases and motifs are woven into this tapestry to reveal an overarching narrative. So I'm not sure that you guys could have enjoyed this series through Haggai as much as I have, but I hope that you gain some new appreciation for these minor prophets. A couple questions to just prime up the pump this morning. Maybe it's just that cynical part of me that still hasn't been mortified, but maybe you have moments like this too. Do you ever look around and grow disillusioned by a lack of faithfulness among Christians? Do you ever look around the broader church landscape and find yourself discouraged by what you see? Like, doesn't it seem like it's every other month that some high-profile Christian leader is falling to some kind of moral failure? Or take our own denomination. You see the number of Southern Baptist pastors, ministers, seminary professors, volunteers who have committed abuse of the worst kinds. Isn't it easy to see that kind of thing and get a little bit hopeless? Or I'll give you a personal one. When I look around at the state of the American church today, I confess I sometimes wonder whether we are faithfully standing, set apart as a counterculture, or whether we are not so assimilated to our culture that we cozy right up to its idols of materialism, individualism, self-autonomy, and so on. When it looks like things are so far gone, what is our hope? And even at the more local level, have you ever been close to some leader, some mentor, someone who you thought was a shining light example only to witness them either tragically fall or just walk away in apathy? Lastly, though, closer to home, do you ever look in the mirror and feel hopeless about the unfaithfulness staring back at you there? Like, I'm still fighting the same sin I was last week, last month, last year, last decade. Or I've gone too far this time. I still don't love the things I ought to with the fervor I ought to. Do we have any hope? As a matter of fact, we do. In our passage today, we will see that even in our unfaithfulness, God remains faithful to accomplish his purposes. Though we veer off to the left and to the right, his course is set and his plan marches on. He accomplishes his purposes and he does so through loving discipline to call his people back to himself so that we can receive his blessings. As we close out the book of Haggai this morning, think back briefly with me at the ground we've covered. I mentioned in passing that the first, in the first week that the whole book is arranged in a chiastic structure, and I want us to see how that fleshes out with the corresponding sections. In the first week, we saw the covenant curses of the house unbuilt as the Lord issued his indictment on his people for busying themselves with their own house while his temple lay in ruins. They had not prioritized his presence or his mission, and because of that, they were living under the curses of the covenant. 
He had struck their crops so that they yielded little. There God called them to consider their ways, to search their hearts. How had his people cared so little about him? Then in the second week, we saw God's presence empowering their repentance as the people of God feared the Lord, and he stirred up their spirit to turn back and bear the fruit of repentance. God said, I am with you, and they got to work on building the temple. Then last week, we saw God's presence encouraging them with future glory. In 2, 1 through 9, the Lord came alongside a discouraged people with encouragement, promising them that the best was yet to come. There he exhorted them to be strong and to work. Why? Again, he repeats, I am with you. And he assures them of future glory and future peace. And then in our section today, which is thematically aligned with the first section, we see the covenant blessings of the house underway. We see that despite the unfaithfulness of his people, he remains faithful in accomplishing his purposes. Let's read. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, It does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider. Is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the beauty of how you've put it together. God, we thank you for the way that it calls us back to you. Lord, may your spirit now move on our hearts as we study your word. May you illuminate your word by your spirit. May you empower us to repent where we need to repent. May you comfort us where we need to be comforted. And may you instill in us great hope this morning. Father, for those that are here that do not know you, we ask that you would draw them to yourself even this morning. Lord, I pray that you would speak 
your word through me now. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. God accomplishes his purposes by lovingly disciplining his people. In some ways, the beginning of our passage almost feels a little bit out of place. Like, as we look back to the previous weeks, we saw the indictment come on the people in the first section, but then they turned back to him. And since then, the message has been largely encouraging. It's, I am with you. I am with you. But then, as we start into verse 10, it can seem at first glance like the tone has changed significantly. But I don't think that's what's going on here. I think that's what's going on here is similar to a type of conversation every parent has had at some time or another. Like, one of your kids does something bad. For example, totally hypothetically, this kind of thing would never happen in my house, but say your three-year-old daughter takes one of the metal Thomas the Tank Engine trains and decks her four-year-old brother in the face with it, okay? What do you do, right? First, there's the indictment. Hey, you can't do that. And then there's the discipline, but then after the discipline is served, what do you do? Often, we'll call them over to review the lesson before they're released. What did you do that got you here? What happens if you do that again? We want to reiterate the discipline so that it sinks in. And I think that's what's going on in the first part of this passage. As the Lord hearkens back to the earlier indictment in order to ensure that his loving discipline sinks in and therefore that his purposes are accomplished. As we read back through in verse 10, first we see Haggai launch into his setup, casting out the bait. One of the jobs of the priests in Israel was to issue rulings about matters of the covenant. So Haggai brings them a scenario, and he asks them to weigh in on it. The first scenario pertains to ritual holiness, and the question here really is a softball. It comes straight out of Leviticus 6 and 7. The questions require Sunday school, not seminary. According to Leviticus, when the people came offering a peace offering, some of the meat was given back to them after being consecrated for the worshiper to take away and have a holy feast on. Which is beautiful, by the way, that God made a barbecue feast part of worship to him. According to Leviticus 6.27, whatever touches its flesh shall be holy. So when you take the holy meat and you carry it in your garment... In the fold of your garment, the garment is now set apart as holy also. But then now the question is, does that garment have the ability to transfer holiness? And the priest's answer, no, and no is the correct answer. Haggai then turns to the other side of covenant purification laws. What about uncleanness? What about defilement? And it's another softball. It comes right out of Numbers 19. Dead bodies are unclean. If a person touches a dead body, then they become unclean. And then the question is, now if that person touches something, does it become unclean also? And the answer, Numbers 19.22, whatever the unclean person touches shall be unclean. And again, the priests answer correctly. So what we're seeing is that holiness is not transferred as easily as defilement. Defilement is an infection that spreads and spreads. Now, 
We could go on about covenantal purity laws, and I'm sure some of you would like to do that this morning, but I don't want to get so in the weeds that we miss the point of the exchange. This back and forth is the setup, and the priests have now taken the bait. Verse 14. Then Haggai answered and said, So is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. And now they're hooked. Note the disassociating language, this people, this nation, not yet the covenantal language, my people. And yet he does call them a nation even while they're still under the thumb of a foreign nation. This people are like the dead body. They are unclean, and therefore even their sacrifices and offerings are unclean. He is saying, in essence, since your hearts were far from me, I rejected even your worship. It's all defiled. If you aren't bringing him your heart, then it doesn't matter what your hands bring. The prophets are replete with examples of God saying this kind of thing. That if it's just rote religious activity, if this is just going through the motions, if this is just lip service, if this is just a Sunday morning thing for you, then you might as well just go home. Malachi 1, God says, I wish someone would just shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. Or take Amos 5, God says he hates their feasts and their offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. Because their worship is only with their lips and not with their lives. In order that his purpose might be accomplished in them, God is ensuring that they understand the problem. This people is defiled and everything they touch is defiled. I wonder, does that sound harsh to you? Like, is it really that serious? What about grace, right? Come on, God understands. He knows my heart. I would submit that if this sounds harsh, it's because we don't rightly view God. If we're going to rightly address the problem of sin, we have to understand how deep the problem goes. We need an accurate diagnosis so that we can have an accurate prognosis, which is to say, don't hand me a Band-Aid if I have heart disease. Someone might say, I like to think of God as more loving. He just looks past those kinds of things. I mean, nobody's perfect. Here's the problem with that. One, it doesn't really matter how you like to think about God. God is who he is. Truth is not something subjective that we look inward to create. Truth is objective. It's outside of us, and therefore it's a reality we must acknowledge. Like, I like to think of Atlanta as a place that's not hot and humid in July. That's all well and good, but when you step outside, the objective reality is going to make you sweat, and it's going to fog up your glasses. But two, that kind of thinking about God is exactly the problem named in Romans 1, whereby the Bible says we suppress the truth about him, we're constructing for ourselves a God who is more palatable to us. And therefore, we fail to worship him for who he actually is. And then that shows up in all kinds of sinful behavior. And then because of all of that, it says we deserve to die. That's Romans 1. 
So then, if you rightly view the Lord of hosts as the holy, good, glorious, omnipotent God who is due the obedient worship of every one of us, it's not harsh to say every work of their hands is defiled or to say all of us deserve death. Rather, it's spot on in its justice and it's wildly loving for him to call that out in them and in us while there's still time to turn back to him. Having reminded them of their defilement, he then proceeds to remind them of the covenant curses they received as discipline. In verse 15, we see the first call to consider in our passage. And on this day where the first stones would be set for the new temple, God reminds them of where they were and the covenant curses that that had netted them. How did you fare? How, when, when you came You came to your crops and your harvest was nothing because I struck you in all the products of your toil. God reminds them of the message of chapter one. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. He reminds them of the curses that they were under for their unfaithfulness. Like the parent with their child. What did you do that got you in trouble? How did that go for you? Church, Hebrews 12, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. He disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God accomplishes his purpose in us by disciplining us as his children. So receive his loving discipline. Receive the discipline of the Holy Spirit when he convicts you of sin. When you feel that nudge from his spirit that something you have done isn't right, receive it and repent. Make right whatever you need yourself against that. When you feel the conviction of his spirit that you're participating in a conversation that you shouldn't be, receive that and respond. When the Spirit convicts you of sinful attitudes or sinful behavior, receive that and seek to mortify the deeds of the flesh and to vivify the fruit of the Spirit. Receive the discipline of his word. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. If you want those things, and every Christian must desire those things, then you must be immersed in his word. Read it on your own. Read it with another church member. Read it in Bible studies, in base groups. Read lots of it and also study bits of it. We must be a people of the book so that we can receive its sanctifying discipline. And we must not be hearers only, rather we must receive it humbly, allowing it to change our thoughts, our hearts, and our behavior to become more conformed to the image of Christ. Receive the loving discipline of community 
when you are rightfully exhorted from a brother or sister. Hebrews 3 tells us that one of God, the God-ordained ways that you persevere in the faith is the exhortation of other brothers and sisters that keeps you from being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So when a brother or sister comes to you to speak a loving word of correction in your life, receive that as the loving provision from your heavenly Father. Consider their point. You should invite this kind of loving exhortation, and you should make it easy for people to approach you with it. God accomplishes his purpose in his people by sending loving discipline. Look with me now to verses 18 to 19. Having reiterated the discipline so that it would sink in for his people, he now says, there's a new day dawning. This day onward is going to mark a change. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. First, with the second and third call to consider that is in our passage, he says, oh, now consider this. Then we see the date repeated. The date is repeated three times over in our passage this morning, and then it's alluded to another three times by this day or or the day. So the repetition is there for emphasis. It's to say, mark this date down. This is a special day. This is your turning point. Then we see the reason it should now be marked. For three months now, they've been at work. But today is foundation day. Today is the day the stones begin to get set. And the foundation day of the temple marks that their hearts have been changed. The setting of the stone is evidence that they have set their hearts on him. They do now desire God's presence to be in their midst. They do desire to be a consecrated people. But the date also clues us into the time of year. It's December 18th. Is the seed still in the barn? By the 24th day of the ninth month, the seed is not in the barn. The seed is in the ground. The land has already been plowed and planted for next year's crop. Indeed, thus far, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing because it's not yet harvest time. But from this day on, I will bless you, says the Lord. Translation, the time of discipline is over. You are no longer under the curses. You are now under the blessings of the covenant. Next year's crop is going to be good. Mark it down even while we're far off from harvesting it. Blessings are about to come. We have grapes coming for wine. We have fruit and olives too. It's time to get ready for feasting. Church, This is the way that our God deals with an unfaithful, defiled people. To a people that could not be bothered to care about him at all. He sends his word to call them to return to him. He stirred up the spirit of the people. He brought them encouragement when they grew discouraged. He has brought about the turning of their hearts and their obedience. And now he promises to pour out blessings on a previously unfaithful and defiled people. But note this, the blessings aren't 
poured out until they turn to him in fear and repentance. This isn't live however you want and I'm still going to be here. Before, they wanted the gift without the giver. So God struck the gift so that his people would turn back to him and then they would get the giver and the gift. Okay, tell me that's not some grace right there. Okay, there's no grace in the Old Testament. You can miss me with that, all right? That is some grace. Ian DeGuid notes here that the material blessings of the Old Covenant were always symbolic of the deeper spiritual blessings that flow from a relationship with God. Church, I can't uh, stand up here and promise you that if you are faithful, then you will get material prosperity. We aren't national Israel in that sense, but we are under a much better covenant. God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Rejoice in his present blessings. In Christ, we have the blessing of justification. Jesus, who knew no sin, took our sin on the cross, paying it in full, so that by faith in him, we would receive his righteousness. You couldn't pay the interest on your sin debt, and he paid the whole thing. We have the blessing of adoption, adoption into his family. We who were once not a people have been adopted into God's people and are given the gift of a local church family to walk alongside us in this journey. We have fellow brothers and sisters to encourage us, to challenge us, to pray for us, and even to come alongside us to meet our needs. Like, voice a real need in this church family and watch how quickly it gets taken care of. That's the blessing of adoption into his family. We have the blessing of new creation. In Christ, the old is gone. We have been made new. I walked into a summer camp in June 2000 as a messed up, angry seventh grader with a heart of stone, apathetic to the things of the Lord. And I walked out of that summer camp, a messed up, angry seventh grader with a new heart, now desiring the things of the Lord and now oriented to him. That's new creation. That's a blessing. We have the blessing of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He's given to us to guide us into all truth, comfort us in our affliction, convict us in our sin, and sustain us to the end. I could go on, but I'll leave something for you to work out in the base group tonight. Uh, listen, though, we don't have any of those blessings unless the Lord graciously indicts us in our sin, produces in us a reverent fear of him, stirs us by his spirit, draws us to the cross by faith, and brings about repentance and obedience. He breaks us before he blesses us. We must all die to our old life before we can be raised to walk in the newness of life. But as if that weren't enough, there's more. God promises blessings to come to the people of Haggai's day, and it's still a blessing to come in our day. The word of the Lord came, verses 20, verse 20, uh, the Lord 
The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. This word is directed specifically at Zerubbabel, and it picks up the theme of shaking the heavens and the earth that we saw earlier in chapter 2. God says, I'm going to shake everything, and when he does, everything that doesn't have a solid foundation will be destroyed. But everything that does have a solid foundation will will remain. Note here that the, the way the text points back with allusions to prior faithfulness in order to make promises forward. He's going to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. Okay, this is the language of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. That's prior faithfulness. While the promise forward is that he's going to do such a thing again. He's going to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. Does that sound familiar? This comes from Exodus 15. That's the prior faithfulness where God, where Moses celebrates God delivering his people by destroying the Egyptian chariots and their riders. But it's also a promise forward of what he will do again. It's going to happen, everyone by the sword of his brother. That's Judges 7 when God defeated the Midianites. That's prior faithfulness, but it's a promise forward. On that day, verse 23, on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now we're talking that day. Previously in our text, it's called this day, this day. Now we're talking that day. He's going to take Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, And that's the key. There's the beauty of the interconnectedness of the scriptures as the authors weave in this intentional language and ideas to clue us into what's going on. If you go back to 2 Samuel 7, we see the promises made to David. There, David is repeatedly called my servant. There, David is uncomfortable with the fact that he dwells in a house of cedar while the presence of God dwells in a tabernacle, and he wants to build a house for God, but God says, no, I'm going to build your house. There, God promises he will bring his people to a place of peace where they will be afflicted no more and will have rest from all of their enemies. Does that sound familiar? Do you see it? This is the same kind of thing he's promising in our text. There, in 2 Samuel 7, 16, God promises David that someone from his line will rule forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. The kingdom then is passed down from generation to generation with David's descendants on the throne while they await the one who will come from his line, and fulfill all of God's purposes. But wait. Because of Israel's unfaithfulness, they're sent into exile. And look what God says through Jeremiah before the exile about the king in David's line. Twenty-two, Jeremiah 22, he says, As I live, declares the Lord, 
though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off. Further down, he says, thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. The signet ring is the sign of the king's authority. It's closely guarded ring kept on either your hand or around your neck, and it's used to seal documents as coming from the king. And so before they're sent into, their into exile for their unfaithfulness to God, he tells David's line, I'm ripping off your ring. Is the plan off? It sure looked that way until I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Son of Shealtiel repeatedly, is repeated over and over in the book. And this identifies Zerubbabel as being in the line of David. God is in essence taking the signet ring previously ripped away and he's saying the plan is still on. His people's unfaithfulness have not nullified his faithfulness. His plans have not been thwarted. But here's the deal. Zerubbabel never sat on the throne. He was a lowly governor given his power by the ruling empire. None of his descendants ever sat on the throne of Israel again. In fact, Israel never really self-governed again. So this promise of Haggai must point forward to another servant who would come from the line of David. And that's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 1. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiod, and Abiod the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. The promise of Haggai 2, 20 to 23, is the promise of the final shaking of this world. When Jesus will set everything right by coming in judgment on all who will persist in their rebellion rather than bow their knee to him willingly. It looks forward to that day when all evil will make war on the Lamb and the Lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called chosen and faithful. On that day, he will deal finally with all the sin, suffering, and evil in this world, banishing it forever. And on that day, there will be no temple because just like it was in the beginning, the whole earth will be God's temple. Rest in his future victory. If you're here today and not a believer, I'm glad you're here. You're welcome here, and we would love the opportunity to talk with you further. But here's my appeal to you this morning. If you are building your life on anything other than Jesus, you're building your life on sand. 
and it might hold together for a little while, but it might hold together for a little while, but when the storms come, and they will come, it will collapse. My prayer for you this morning is twofold. One, that you would turn even today from basing your life on anything other than Jesus. Or two, if you won't turn today, I pray that God would so lovingly pursue you that he would bring the storms now so that you can see the inadequate foundation you're basing your life on and so that you can turn to him in faith and repentance. The storms will come and the foundation will be tested and there's only one name by which you can be saved. There's only one kingdom that will not be shaken. When he's ready, the world's sinful rebellion will be put down swiftly and forcefully. So defect now. Turn to him in faith and repentance. If that's you this morning, then I encourage you, talk to the friend that brought you, talk to the person sitting beside you, or come talk to one of us that's been up here this morning. We'd love to talk with you more about that. For the rest of us here that have already bowed in submission to Christ, I leave you to work out further application with the Holy Spirit and in community as you gather with your base group tonight. Receive his loving discipline. Rejoice in his present blessings. Rest in his future victory. And remember this, when you look around at a global church not yet perfected, or a local church not yet perfected, or when you look in the mirror at a beloved saint not yet perfected, even in our unfaithfulness, God remains faithful to accomplish his purposes. His course is set, and his plan marches on, and victory ultimately depends on his faithfulness. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the way that it calls us to you. I pray that you would do that for us even now, even as we go from here and consider your word. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict us where we need to be convicted, encourage us where we need to be encouraged. God, as we gather in uh, base groups tonight, Lord, I pray that you would continue to help us apply your word, that you would continue to help us think through the blessings that you've given us now, and that you would continue to help us rest in the victory to come. Lord, we thank you for all your blessings, Lord, that we don't deserve, and we thank you for the reality that persevering in the faith depends on you. We thank you for the fact, Lord, that you are in control at all times in this world. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.